Hey friends, glad to have you checking back into the podcast. You could spend your time in a lot of different ways, but for one reason or another, you've chosen to listen to a podcast of a small Methodist church in northeastern Oklahoma. Maybe you live around here and you're looking at a church to plug into. You're very welcome to check us out. Maybe you're far away and you're just looking at different churches and something has brought you into, brought us into your site, in which case I uh, hope you enjoy your time with us and hope you're encouraged to find a local church in, in the time you spend with us. Uh, during the liturgical seasons of Advent, Christmas, Lent, and Easter, I spend my time preaching on the Revised Common Lectionary readings that have been selected long beforehand. So this last Sunday was the last time I'm going to be doing that until Lent begins on Ash Wednesday in a few weeks. Um, the The readings were all for the baptism of our Lord Sunday. Uh, they help us meditate on why it was that Christ was baptized when he didn't have to be, and what does baptism have to do with us, and how how important is baptism? Is it required? Is it essential? Is it some optional thing? Uh, what did Jesus say about baptism? What do the scriptures all over? You know, I quoted a few other scriptures that weren't in the Revised Common Lectionary for the day. Baptism is one of the things that Methodists in particular are concerning ourselves with because a lot of churches like this one has disaffiliated from the United Methodist Church. And uh, whether or not they're part of the global Methodist church now, a lot of local churches are having to discern, okay, how sacramental do we want to be? And that, if you don't know that word, the, the sacraments are typically understood by Methodists to be baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. But um, just because those two things are found in Scripture does not mean that there's at all any agreement about how we should observe those things and how important they are to the life of faith. So um, I don't speak directly to those questions. Well, I do a little bit in uh, the message that you're about to hear, but it's more um, the, the lectionary readings have a start at Genesis. You know, what does water have to do with creation? Uh, what, what are the themes that recur throughout the Bible around baptism and water and death and new life? And then, you know, the, we kind of weave through those themes. So some, some Sundays, kind of rare Sundays, uh, I'm focused on a thing that is very clear and everything. I don't have anything like that this last Sunday. Rather, it's a series of meditations on water, death, new birth, baptism. And so uh, I don't think that's frustrating. I think there are so many... Th I actually think it's bad when every sermon has like a point and everybody needs to... To understand it and everything is is crafted to make an argument. I think uh, biblical worldview often is not an argument; it's a story. It's a it's a framework that that we're learning to abandon the world framework and abandon er, and adopt like a a Christian, a distinctly authentically Christian lens for uh, the world. So, if you're not a Methodist and you hear me talking about this Methodist doctrine stuff, look. Anytime you're learning about anything. There is no way to just objectively approach it. You have different schools of thought that you need to to entertain as you come forward. So, whenever I'm talking about Methodism, if you don't know Methodism, it's it's 100% Orthodox Christianity. We don't have our own version of the Bible. We don't have unbiblical doctrines. Uh, Methodism was a dream of restoring the early primitive church, is is what it was called. So, as you're entertaining these different ideas that I'm giving. This is not something from some weird sect that developed 100 years ago. This is all stuff that goes all the way back to the beginning. So 
uh, it's all important, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it, and uh, I sure hope a church wouldn't be putting it out there, but there is a lot of garbage from churches nowadays, so I'm glad you're choosing to take this one seriously. Um, I don't have any announcements that I want to make. Uh, I would just continue to... All listeners ask you to pray for this church, and then also, if you're not connected to a local church, just want to always urge you to make that a big priority in your life. So with that in mind, let's get into it. Our first reading is from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, which you can find on page 1 of your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. This is the word of the Lord. Do you think the creation story is important for understanding who God is? I like whoever said absolutely. The rest of you, that was less than sufficient. Uh, I'm, I'm just joking. But um, absolutely, the creation story, I mean, it's the very first story that tells us of the nature and, and work of God. And it, it matters a lot. Today, we're focusing on the topic of baptism. And, of course, the word baptize is not used in this story at all. However, baptismal imagery is used in the use of water. Water in our culture, you know, we, we have people who, on purpose, get in the water and swim. Ancient Hebrews thought that was weird. Water is a place of death and destruction. Of course, uh, ancient Jews did not have swimming pools and chlorine and, and all this. They had the Mediterranean Sea, and that's where people uh, get shipwrecked and die. You know, the, all ancient cultures understood that water was a force of chaos and death, and it was a thing that only crazy people, like sailors, intentionally got on there and uh, uh, engaged in. You'll remember the Jonah story we covered a while back. Uh, it was a terrifying event that they had on the sea that uh, they eventually threw him over, and he was as good as dead in the water. Water is a place of death and destruction. Most ancient chaos narratives that deal with uh, a god of order doing war against a god of chaos. The chaos monster is in the sea. Sea monsters are a form of chaos. All of this is right here at the very beginning. There are waters, formless and void, wild and waste. The Hebrew is tohu vavohu, wild and waste. There, there is no order, and God's presence is there, but it hasn't yet spoken his powerful word yet. And when God does, God creates order out of disorder. The very first thing we see about God is that he's a God of order. He separates things that are mixed together. He's not a God of gray. He's a God of black and white. And so there should be an expectation on our end that when we have this same God active in our lives, we do not live lives of disorder or dysfunction, but rather we who are made in his image and given his power, we become order makers. Do you all feel like I'm stretching here? I really don't think I am. I remember the very first time I learned about Methodists being an orderly and disciplined people. I thought, 
that seems unnecessary. That's not core and key to the faith. And then I got to know a bunch of disordered people. I'm sure none of you deal with any disorder in your life. No dysfunction at all. You're all perfectly balanced, right? But what we see in the creation story over the six days is that God has to create order. He has to create separation and function in order for life to form, right? So it's only in the last couple of days that he can plant life in the areas where he has created order. That's what our lives are like. And if we have disordered, dysfunctional lives, then God is not going to move there because God is not a God of disorder, amen? If we are walking with the Lord, then that requires that we order our lives, that we have disciplined lives. As Jordan Peterson says, uh, fixing the world requires first you cleaning your room. And that's something that a lot of people need to hear about discipline of just running your household well, mowing your lawn, um, uh, taking good care of the things that God has given you. If you can't do that, then maybe you need to have less stuff. Maybe you're worshiping mammon by accumulating stuff. But it's also not just to do with stuff, it's to do with our relationships. How many people, I know nobody here has it, but how many people carry dysfunctional relationships in their lives? Whether they be codependent, codependent or abusive or exploitative, I actually know very few people who have all balanced functional relationships. Most of us are trying to maintain some form of toxicity in our relational lives. And we like to imagine, oh, I can help them and they won't affect me at all. And that's a lie from the evil one because we are like sponges. We are impacted by one another. Do you know this about yourself? We all like to imagine that we can manage sin. Oh, I can let a little sin in here, a little disorder here, no big deal. That's exactly what Satan is counting on. If you cede any ground to him, he, he loves to invade and take ground. And he's very gifted at that. He's had thousands of years of practice, and people like me are idiots. And if you're like me and you're an idiot too, then the evil one easily has his way with you. And so I think it's very important to have a very two-dimensional reading of Scripture here. If we are of God, then we don't allow any dysfunctional or disorder in our lives. And I know I've said this from the pulpit before, and I appreciate the intent, but if I know nobody here has it. But have you ever walked into a house and on the wall it says, God bless this mess? I think that's a sign of defeat right there. God blesses order. God creates order. God does not leave us in disorder and dingy dungeons. He brings us out into the light. Amen? In the beginning, God created light, and he said, it is good. We are his people of the light, but the light only shines when you separate it from the darkness, and that's what we're doing here, right? We come out of the world to then go back into the world and shine like stars. This is all biblical imagery. This is nothing original on my part. This all happens, though, through the waters. In 2 Peter, Peter talks about the waters of the flood saving Noah and his sons. How did it save them? Well, it wiped out the rest of the wicked world, didn't it? They were saved and delivered through the waters of death. Listen to this from Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? This is verse 1. I preached on this like a year ago. Y'all should go back and listen to this. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He's just been talking about how grace is more powerful than sin, right? So let's sin so that grace can, can show off more. Verse 2, he says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Or don't you know 
that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Did you know this about baptism? Did you know that when you were baptized, you were baptized into the death of Christ Jesus? Did Christ literally die? In every sense of the word, he, he died. He descended to the dead. We just talked about this. When we're baptized, we're, we participate in that death. We die to ourselves. We die to our sin. We die to this world. We die to everything except Christ. And we're raised again in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. This is not a teach. I don't know why. I've, pre I've preached on this like 40 times. I, uh, people don't hold to this because they understand if, baptiz if baptism is more than just a photo op, if baptism is more than just some neat ceremony, if it's actually something that, that matches a literal death and rebirth event, if that's what it is, then it demands a rapid, radical transformation in our lives, doesn't it? How many people have been baptized and they live exactly the same after that, that they did before? I would say that's a clear majority of American Christians today. There is not an expectation on our part that anyone has died to sin or been freed from its power. Rather, there is a notion people have that, oh, it really wasn't that big of a deal. I can pretty much stay the same, maybe tweak a few things. That is not the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is you went under the water. Water causes death. You died. You came out a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are now a new creation. That's what the Bible talks about. That is the expectation. Now, you might get nerdy and start nitpicking. Oh, does that mean we never sin again? No. For some people, actually some people I, I do believe have been blessed with instant sanctification. I was not one of them. I hope that's abundantly clear. Otherwise, I'm being dishonest. I still struggle with sin. Most people, it's a gradual process where the power of sin has been removed. And if you don't believe in that, what do you think we're doing here? Is this just the club of people who are still dead in their sins but love Jesus? That's not the faith of Jesus Christ. That's the faith of demons. And James, he says, you believe that God is one. Good for you. The demons believe that, and they tremble. At least they have the decency to tremble. We live in a generation of people believing, oh, I believe in God. I'm saved. No, you're not. Obedience marks a saved person. And yet, how many people want to get baptized and still spend their lives in idolatry? Give me a break. Now, let's be clear. Does baptism save us? No. It's faith alone in Christ Jesus that saves us, right? But that faith is marked by, I was just talking about it, obedience. And what did Jesus say about baptism? Yeah, do it. Yeah. All power in heaven and on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, he said. Remember, he, he had been raised from the dead. He met the apostles on a mountain. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, you guys go into the world to baptize new believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey every single thing I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you even until the end of the age. Did he stutter? No. Was he at all unclear? No. That's the expectation. And he repeated, he did repeat himself. Thank God he repeated himself because we find people, oh, he only said that once or twice. No, 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 no. Bible repeats itself. Another thing he said that was really good. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And Jesus commanded us to baptize and be baptized. To use this symbol of death, water, for a new birth, a new way of life, 
And is this a negotiable part of the faith? Absolutely not. There are a lot of people who want to make it one. Oh, preacher, well, what do you do with a thief on the cross? He didn't get baptized. You mean to tell me he wasn't saved? That is a silly argument. That is not a legitimate argument. That is a very exceptional circumstance where Christ himself was right there. If we are trying to major in the minors and have this exceptional faith, oh, God, God, he's going to save me like that. That is a foolish way to go through life. First off, God's going to do what he wants. Amen? He's going to do things how he's, he's going to do them, and I can't control that. But has he told us what we're supposed to do? Has he told you, O oh mortal, how you ought to live? He didn't stutter. So it's up to you not to go, well, he might change his mind and let me in anyway. Oh, he might make a special little way for me. That is so narcissistic. Shut that brain up. He expects the same thing of you that he's expected of every other believer for 2,000 years. He's told you what you ought to do. Getting baptized is one of hundreds of things you ought to do. And it's absolutely essential on the front end of faith. Now, we'll talk about infant baptism here in a minute because a lot of people are of the mind that you should only do it once you believe the right thing. We'll come to that in a minute. But I've, I've preached enough on Genesis. The main thing I wanted you to hear for Genesis was, if you have disorder and dysfunction in your life, your faith requires that you do something about it. And that's not, everybody get away from me, I'm going to be pure and perfect on my own. That's to say that you are now an agent of God's order in your life. If you have any place that you're not advancing the cause of order, you need to repent of that and leave from here resolved to do something about it, Okay. Our second reading is Psalm 29, which you can find on page 864 of your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare, and in his temple all cry, Glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Is God's voice powerful? Are our voices powerful? I was just talking about the power of prayer. Prayer is something we say. I know a lot of people offer up thoughts. Say, say your prayers out loud. I don't know about you, but I, whenever I offer up thoughts as prayer, they're not even in complete sentences. They're more just feelings. It's good to really put into words what it is you want from God, who it is you want to be for God. Words are powerful. There's so much scripture about the importance of words, isn't there? 
We who are made in God's image are given a, a, some of God's authority. And I just talked about his authority to create order out of chaos, right? Part of our authority is also speaking God's word. He has already spoken it. It's for us to tell other people because other people are not psychic, are they? As much as we want them to be, if you want people to know things, you tell them. The only way to tell them is with your words. Words are powerful. Your voice is powerful. When we read this scripture, it's so easy to go, oh, God, God, powerful. I have no power. No, you have a lot of power, actually. You have a lot of influence over other people. Do you feel that way? A lot of people feel powerless. They just go, oh, it doesn't really matter what I do. No, it matters greatly what you do. It matters what you say. It matters who you say it to. It matters where your words are rooted. As we read this, you know, it says his voice is over the waters, and that immediately summons that Genesis chapter 1 imagery, doesn't it? God's Holy Spirit dwelled upon the waters, and then he spoke, and there was light. And he separated the waters from the waters, and he separated the seas from the lands, and he created life. That's what he has done. The question is not what has God done. The question isn't even what is he going to do. We've heard that too in the scriptures. The question is what are we going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to live? How are you going to use the powerful voice God has given you? Just so we're clear, are you God? No, no, no. That was an easy one. You're not God. But God has redeemed you and he has given you his authority. Are you going to use it? Are you going to use it well? Listen to these kids being optimistic. The adults are going, I don't know. The kids are going, yeah. May we all have such clarity of faith. May we mean it as we go forth from this place to shine like stars. I have a powerful voice God has given me. I'm going to use it to his glory and for the benefit of those around me. For those who stay for communion, the closing prayer is going to remind us we are given all of these treasures from God, not for our, sa- for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. That's the purpose of our faith. It's not just to sit around and be saved and, oh, we're the holy saved club. It's to go out and be a part of God's saving work out there. And is God powerful enough to save? Is he powerful enough to use us to do it? Let's, uh, let's just go ahead to our third reading, Acts of the Apostles. This talks about the power and nature of baptism. Our third reading is from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, which you can find on page 1724 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. When Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. This is the word of the Lord. There are a couple of um, sort of controversial things to talk about with this scripture. I'm just I'm going to give you the party line, not because I can't go deeper, but because we're limited by time. 
Methodists have a certain theology around baptism that I just think is important to be understood. You don't have to agree with me to be saved. I can extend the hand of friendship and brotherhood to you if you see it different. Um, let's get clear on the details here. Uh, Apollos was in Corinth, but Paul took this road through Ephesus. He found some people who were followers of Jesus. He asked them if they'd received the Holy Spirit, and their answer was, we hadn't even heard about a Holy Spirit. That's a problem because Christ Jesus commanded that people should be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's a problem. So he introduces them to the Holy Spirit. Well, he said, have you been baptized? They said, yeah. What, what kind of baptism did you get if not the one in the Holy Spirit? Well, we got the one of John. And so we're going to hear about John the Baptist here in a minute. That's the John it's talking about. That was a baptism of repentance, he said. That's not the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel is not just repent, it's believe, receive new life, walk in newness of life, made power. What is it that makes you, I, I have, I, I'll give it away in the way I have to phrase it perfectly, what or who is it that makes you able to walk in newness of life? The Holy Spirit. So of course they're not living the fullness of the life of Christ Jesus because they don't have the power of his Holy Spirit. They don't even know about the Holy Spirit. So then he speaks to them. He lays hands on them, right? He placed hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So one of the controversial things is, do all who are truly saved by God, do they all speak in tongues and prophesy? Of course, Pentecostalism in America uh, does argue, well, some of it still argues. In the beginning, they all argued, if you have not spoken in tongues, you are not saved. You've, you've only received... The, some preliminary baptisms, but that is not the fullness of what God has for you. All Christians speak in tongues. We are not Pentecostals. Pentecostals did come out of Methodism, if you didn't know that. That's a we're a tradition they came out of. But we're not Pentecostals. Now, does that mean that we say there are no tongues? Tongues have ceased. The Holy Spirit has ceased doing these things? No, we don't go to that extreme either. Methodists allow for tongues to be an expression of the Holy Spirit. However, we stand with Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, that speaking in tongues is like a, a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal if it's not undergirded by love. Love is the thing that all Christians have. True, godly, divine love from Christ Jesus. That's what we all have. And if you don't have that love, then you're lost. Then you are not a Christian. But if you haven't spoken in tongues, that's okay. But God help you. If the Holy Spirit comes upon one of you and you are led to speak in tongues, God help you if you keep shut up about it. You need to speak in tongues, but I'm going to insist that there's an interpreter present because that's the scriptural edict. And if we don't have an interpreter present, then yeah, you need, you need to keep quiet about it. So that's, that's one thing that's controversial about baptism. The other is baptizing babies. We're part of a tradition that baptizes babies whenever it seems pretty clear to some people that the only people who should be baptized into the church are people who understand the historic doctrines, the nature of salvation, and, and all the things about the faith. So that's called believer's baptism, and Methodists are not believer baptizers. We baptize people who don't fully understand the faith, whether you're talking about babies or mentally retarded people, people at the end of life who uh, are very much drawn to Christ and they can't understand the fullness of it. We don't believe, Methodists don't believe, that our salvation depends on our understanding. Salvation is largely a mystery. Nobody understands the fullness of it. If you think you do, you are wrong. So it depends on God's power and our submission. That's really what it's about, submission, obedience. And the reason I, I have clarity on that is because in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says, 
In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. For those of us who have been part of the faith for a while, circumcision is when you remove part of the male genitalia in order to enter into covenant with God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, right? That's the entry point. We don't do that in the Christian faith. If you've read Galatians, you know that's a no-no. Do not circumcise your boys. Uh, we have, been, we have uh, had the circumcision without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. All of a sudden, we're thinking, where do we hear this? Romans chapter 6. Were we buried with him? Yes, in baptism. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. What it's saying here is, just as circumcision had people enter the covenant in the Old Testament, in the Old Law, our spiritual circumcision is baptism. Did the Jews circumcise babies? Absolutely. Yes, they're instructed to. We just had the uh, story of Jesus being dedicated on that. That's something that he himself went through. So because the Jews initiated babies, Christians also initiate babies. It's a one-to-one -one correspondence. I think it couldn't be any clearer there. There are people who argue with me. Of course, I think they're wrong. I could be wrong. It seems like a very clear correlation here. The, the point to me is, can God, does God save babies? Do, do, we, do we imagine that babies are less worthy than us? Nobody would say that. They would say they don't understand, and so they can't come in. I would just say that if it's dependent on our understanding, we're all lost. None of us understands. We might see ourselves as a lot smarter than somebody else. We are all mentally retarded compared to God. I know that was kind of a crass way of putting it, but I just don't think our understanding has anything to do with that. I think it has to do with submission. So I don't baptize people that I don't think are going to be growing in faith in the church for the rest of their lives. If somebody shows up, we don't do run-of-the-mill just bat. Who wants to get baptized today? We don't have a water slide that we have people sign a card to get on and get in at the end of worship. We don't do that. Because baptism is a rebirth. It's a big deal. And similarly, whenever somebody wants a photo op for their kid, oh, pastor, would you baptize my kid? No, I don't do that if they're not already part of the life of the church. If they're not going to raise their kid in the church, I'm just raising up kids for the evil one. I'm not going to do that. I baptize a lot of people here, not just my kids. I baptize that guy, and I'm very happy about that. And when I say I, it's really God through the church through me, right? I baptize that guy. That guy, there have been a number of people that I've been really happy to bring into the faith. And it's because of God's faithfulness and you, me seeing in you a desire to submit to him for the rest of your lives. But if it's not marked with submission, it shouldn't happen. Now, whether you're talking about the baptism of John or the baptism of Christ Jesus, the front end is repentance, non-optional. There isn't anybody come to Christ that is going to come, I have nothing to apologize for. We all have something to repent of. Many of us need to continue in repentance. In fact, all of us do. And if we're offended at that notion, that's indicating that we aren't really saved. Repentance is at the front door of faith and initiation into this. And I just need to close these thoughts by affirming baptism doesn't save. It participates in our salvation. But it's faith alone that saves, and then it leads us to obedient walking with him. And one of the most important things that he gives us is the sacrament of baptism. He said it, do it, and it is an outward and visible sign of his grace that is inwardly evident. And God help us if we don't obey. So I want to, uh, is it appropriate for a pastor to put pressure on people? 
Okay, because I'm going to do that. If you think it's inappropriate, you're about to be offended. But if you have not been baptized, then you need to be baptized. It needs, I'm not going to say, oh, you're going to hell. I'm not going to threaten you. I'm just going to say Jesus said to do it. You have no good excuse not to other than if you want to be in rebellion. And that way leads to damnation. But that's your, I'm just warning you. If you're not baptized, whether you let me do it, if, this, if I'm not your pastor, if this ain't your church, you need to find a church to be baptized into and then faithfully walk with Christ for the rest of your days. That's the biblical expectation. If I'm preaching on baptism and I don't put that pressure on you, then I should just go ahead and retire from preaching because that's just a fundamental thing. You need to feel that pressure. Just like, you know, well, that's enough for now. All right, we need to have our final reading for this morning. This is Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. It's on page 1555 of your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of the Lord. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's the exact same baptism they got in Ephesus, right? Verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Who's he talking about there? Jesus, yeah. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So once again, in Acts, there's this concern of which baptism did you get? Was it just this repentance water baptism, or have you also been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Man, I wish I had 30 more minutes to preach on this, because we need to look at Ephesians if you're talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit. If baptism of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues, well, what is it? That's a good question to have, and I'm just going to let it be a cliffhanger for you so you are dissatisfied and go home and search that question in the Bible. Verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. Whose do you think it was? God the Father. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Some people read this and they go, oh, Jesus was just a normal man until just here. That is not what just happened. Jesus has been the Son of God since before the beginning of creation the Son of God, the Word of God, took on flesh, and He's led a perfect life up until here. This is a public acknowledgement by the Father as to who the Son is. But Christ was only, Jesus was only and ever Christ. So that's just a form of heresy that shows up every couple hundred years in the church. I understand how some people come to that conclusion. It doesn't fit with the rest of the Scriptures. Jesus has only ever been the Christ from day one till, well, since before time began to since time ends. What does this have to do with us here? I think it's a basic sign of obedience. Did Jesus need to get baptized in order to be saved? No, he didn't even need to be saved. He's the one human ever born who didn't need to be saved. He had no sin to answer for. He did not need to be baptized for his salvation. I think what the life of Christ shows is the way that we should live. You know, I don't think that we have all these stories about Jesus who lived and died the way he did, and then we get to live completely different and die completely different. Rather, I think he sets the pattern, right? In Hebrews, he's called the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Pioneer means he goes before. He's the first one. He shows us what the life of faith looks like, right? We should live how Christ lived. We should die how Christ died. We will raise as Christ is raised. Amen? 
This is just basic Christian theology. And if Jesus gets baptized, then is there any world in which it's not really necessary for me to get baptized? That is a very silly thought, don't you think? And if we're going through our life avoiding baptism, going, well, so-and-so can be, you'd probably be saved without it. That betrays a serious lack of understanding about the nature of the scriptures and of Jesus' ministry. If he did it, we should do it. There, I mean, this is not the only thing, but this is right on the front end. This is just beginner Christian stuff. Interesting facts about the early church. You may or may not like this. Maybe this will wake up some people. In the early church, they wouldn't baptize you for three years. You had to come in and show that you were committed. You were really into this thing. Hundreds of hours of catechism and instruction. Had to know everybody in the church. Had to memorize a bunch of scripture. And the church grew. Leaps and bounds. They grew from a minor cult to 10% of the Roman Empire in 100 years. A statistical anomaly. When they got baptized, they got baptized in the nude. In a freshwater river. And when women got baptized, they wouldn't let them wear braids because demons could hide in the braids. Full immersion, naked, in a river. I haven't done that to any of y'all. I'm probably not gonna. But that's the level of commitment and seriousness people once had about baptism. And you know, I would like to think that we can have that level of commitment and seriousness about our covenant with Christ without having to get naked to do it. I would like to imagine that as I'm up here preaching, you're not going, oh, you know, he's getting paid to say this stuff, and of course he thinks it's the most important thing. I hope you're receiving these words and going, this is the most important thing. And where I disagree with the Bible, I am wrong. And God's word is right. And going forth from here, my job is not to go back and do what I want to do. My job is to go and submit to God and obey his commandments and joyfully do so, believing that what he has told me to do is good for me. If there's something about my presentation that is not making that clear, help me. That's my one job here. It's to do everything I can to make this stuff real to you so you don't get to the end of your life and go, I should have done more. I should have obeyed. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of obedience. And don't put it off till tomorrow or to the end of your life. Do it now. Okay? I can't make you. I wouldn't make you. I can't make you. I wouldn't make you. But I pray that the Holy Spirit operates powerfully on your heart so you stop rebelling. And you take joy in submitting.